Hey, welcome back to the Female Founder World Podcast. It's your host, Jasmine here. And before we get into the chat with Eliza Blank, the founder of The Sill, I've got a free resource for you. If you're someone who's handling your own PR, so many founders that I speak with are either doing their own PR or they're really involved in their company's PR strategy. You need a really up-to-date database of editors and writers to pitch. And I have one for you. It was created for my beauty business, The Buff. It's what landed us in Vogue, Refinery29, L, Well and Good, so many other places. It is also created from more than a decade of my experience working as an editor and freelance writer. And the only way to get your hands on this database and this list is to leave a review of the podcast, take a screenshot of that review and DM it to me at Female Founder World on Instagram. And I'll send you the link so you can explore that database. It's a good one. Now, before we get into the episode, I just have a really quick note from the sponsor of our show. I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. I'm focused on our strategy and innovation in the CX department here at Princess Polly. The Princess Polly online store was born in a true startup style in 2010 in Australia, and we launched our US-based operation in Los Angeles in 2019. And now we are one of the fastest growing online women's fashion brands in the US and Australia. Our first value is customer centricity, so every single department is paying attention to the customer experience. We aim to deliver every single time and being customer focused is really daring to be different. We first and foremost listen to our customers and always remember that customer perception is reality. Our demographic is Gen Z and this is the I expect a response now. I call them the now customer. Our CX teams engage across every single channel. It is very important that we meet our customers where they are and Gorgeous allows us the opportunity to be efficient with all of these channels located in one place. We show up to work each and every day with one goal in mind, and that is to provide the best customer experience for our customers all over the globe. I have a quote, and I always tell our CX leaders that customer experience is the heart of an organization, and we pump the blood and deliver the oxygen to the vital organs in the business to help them thrive and grow stronger. So AI and tech have played a large piece in a lot of the decisions that we've made at Princess Polly over the last year and going forward that we will make when it comes to utilizing systems to their fullest optimization. I will share that late last year, for example, we migrated ticketing platforms from from the very popular Zendesk to Gorgeous because it is the experience that we're focused on, the agent experience and the customer experience. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, you can go to gorgeous.com and start a free trial today. You are now entering Female Founder World with your host, Jasmine Grindsworthy. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the pod. I have Eliza Blank, the founder of The Sill, with me today. And Eliza, let's kick things off by just letting people know a little bit more about the mission that you guys are following at The Sill and maybe a couple of touch points that help everyone understand how big you are and how far along you are in kind of the founder story right now. So I'll work backwards. Our mission, our, our real, really our core purpose is to bring life to people and people to life. And that might sound somewhat esoteric, but it's actually grounded in something incredibly tangible, which is plants. And so the SIL is a direct-to-consumer brand focused on plants and biophilic design. And really, we're, we're aiming to connect people or reconnect people with nature. And we believe that nature 
is the is the source of resilience and restoration things that we need now in this modern time more than ever and so we bring people easy to care for house plants and botanicals and flowers and all of the different things that are required to both display beautifully and take care of those living things so that we can uh, increase our emotional well-being through some of these these live goods. We have been in business since 2012. Uh, we're about 80 people strong, and we are both online and brick and mortar. So that includes our retail teams. We have six stores in four major cities, New York, LA, San Francisco, and Chicago. And and yeah, that's, that's sort of the, the basis for our conversation today. That's awesome. How did you get into this kind of work? So I went to school in New York City. I attended NYU. I studied communications, but I grew up in a somewhat rural part of Massachusetts, which really was my inspiration for the sill in many ways. My mother is an avid gardener. She tends to her houseplants, and I just grew up sort of surrounded by greenery, so to speak. And then when I departed that environment for New York City, it left a really big hole in my heart. And I realized that I actually had this desire and interest in nature, but couldn't really balance that with my desire and interest in having a sort of an urban experience as well. So I went to school, as I mentioned, for communications. I started my career in brand strategy. And up until running or sorry, founding and running the SIL, I worked for a company called Living Proof, which is hair care. Many listeners probably know it. They make wonderful shampoos and conditioners. So a CPG company, conventionally speaking, but what many people don't realize is that it was a startup. It was founded and incubated by a venture group out of Boston. I joined very early stage. And so the four years that I ended up being there before I started the SIL were were pretty foundational to me being able to actually launch my own business and, and set out on my own entrepreneurial journey. So, you know, I had I had a startup experience, which not everyone has before I myself started the SIL, but I started the SIL, you know, I was 26 years old at about five years all in of professional experience. So I was still very, very new to what I was doing, certainly new to the category in the sense that what I had an interest in plants, but I didn't have a business background in it. And, you know, I, I was able to sort of develop this toolbox that eventually allowed me to, to do what I'm doing now. And you started with a Kickstarter campaign, I think you had, I read that you had about 30 grand to launch the company. And I'm so curious about where you spent that $30,000 and how you deployed that money to get traction. Yeah. I mean, honestly, 30 grand probably includes credit cards. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't even think we had 30. We did a Kickstarter. I want to say that Kickstarter was maybe like $12,000, you know, so what's you know, what's interesting about being an entrepreneur is you learn very quickly to be resourceful. And, you know, because uh, for most of us, we don't have a tremendous amount of resources or capital behind us, especially if it's just a preliminary idea. So you have to be scrappy and you have to know that what you're going to put out into the world is really, you know, what they call an MVP, a minimal viable product, meaning it's like the, the, like the the smallest version of your idea. So you can have a really big vision and you should, but you shouldn't let sort of perfection or attaining that, you know, big grand vision get in the way of iterating, of starting small and iterating. And that's really how I got started. I mean, the SIL initially was this website that you could really only shop on if you lived near me because I was the delivery mechanism for our product. 
So you could purchase a plant if you were living in Manhattan or Brooklyn, because on the back end of that transaction, I was literally buying the plant, potting the plant and delivering it to your doorstep. Doesn't seem scalable at all. And in fact, it took from 2012 to 2014 to get to a point where I was actually in a system that allowed us to ship nationwide. And, you know, that two years is, is not nothing to try and to do that very manually and to figure it out. Something that really interests me is this idea around when you're in that really imperfect MVP stage, like what are some of those indicators or signals that make you think that, that your idea is working and that you should keep, that you should keep going with it? I'm really interested, like specifically what that was for you at the SIL. That's a great question. And it's funny because in retrospect, I would say that I actually chose a lot of arbitrary goals that to me meant something, but to others on the outside looking in may not have meant anything at all. Some of them were financial, you know, can I achieve X amount of dollars in the first year? Can I grow by X percent in the second year? I wasn't even benchmarking that. It was just what is going to keep me as the founder and, and really like the solo employee engaged and excited by this. And there were so many times where, you know, uh, literally in, in, in year one, I would tell myself, if nobody orders today, or if nobody orders this week, I'm done. And then someone would order and it would just like keep me enthused and keep me going. Again, in retrospect, I'm like, what, what was I thinking? I mean, the first year I made no money. It's, it's hard to believe that that was still enough to keep me excited. But, you know, I was young and I was, I was just... I was so passionate and continue to be passionate really about what I was building that it kept me going. So I think it's actually, I think it's actually a personal question more so than business benchmarking. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think you're definitely right. There are a lot of the founders that I speak with kind of come to entrepreneurship with this vision around, I don't know, like this is going to work. And they're not actually looking at the day-to-day traction to kind of talk themselves into or out of the idea. They're just, they're just doing it and they're figuring it out. That's absolutely right. You mentioned before about all of those wonderful stores that you have. And I, I know the sill from e-com mostly, and I'm curious about how that kind of physical store and e-commerce omni-channel strategy evolved and what it looks like in the beginning versus what it looks like now. Yeah. It was, so my interest was always, so I I mentioned I started my career in brand strategy. So my interest was always in brand and marketing for that matter. It's something that in in some way, shape or form, I've, I've sort of always been interested in. And so I knew a little bit about how I wanted to spend my time. That being said, as I mentioned in year one, I mean, it was such a rudimentary business. It was, you know, a very basic Shopify website. You could only shop on it if you lived in a, a handful of zip codes. And so it did require some momentum to get going. It required, I mean, literally people had to buy the product because if they weren't spending money with me, I had no money to reinvest into the business. You know, at that point in time, we were not capitalized in any way, shape or form. And so, you know, I'd like to think in some ways we are forced to find product market fit and forced to listen to the customer because that was my source Mm -hmm. of funding. And so we went from, you know, that very, very first iteration of the website eventually to a website that better supported national shipping because over time we were starting to scale. We were starting to see more people come to the site. We're starting to see customers um, inquire about shipping or inquire about buying a product that were out of state. So it just, it took a lot of time to figure out. And, you know, at one point I had this sort of 
odd warehouse space off of Craigslist and rented it with, you know, what little money that we had and, you know, hired a couple of, um, you know, sort of generalists, you know, they didn't even really have distinct roles. And, you know, they were helping me run the business because what it required was someone who could, you know, possibly write copy for the website, but then drive a cargo van or pack a box. And, and that's really what the <laughs> early days looked like until we just started to create a real following. And then, you know, uh, as my story goes, I ended up actually bootstrapping to north of a million in revenue, which not a ton of people <laughs> have a history of doing. And then I ended up raising institutional venture after having gotten to that point. But none of it was glamorous and it was a real slog. And once you do get that first injection of venture capital money, what changed in the business? Well, I would say that I am very pragmatic from that perspective. I've learned how to run a business that really sort of walks the fine line of profitability and survives. And, and I think it's because of that, that not only have I found investors who sort of believe in my approach, um, but I've also found you know a leadership team who does as well. And, and what I mean by my approach is, you know, I didn't raise venture capital just to, you know, throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks and, 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 and burn a ton of cash, which, you know, I think we've also seen a lot of companies do. I really use it thoughtfully and carefully to consistently grow the business and definitely test and learn, um, but not in any flippant way. I think I'm very careful with the money that um, our investors have given us. We, we take our our role as stewards of that capital very seriously. And, and, that, and so that, that experience has absolutely impacted the way that I run the company post-financing. Post Mads, I am obsessed with our brand pillars. You mean vagina sweat, good branding, and being Jewish-blooded queens, Scout? Uh, sure, but not quite. I love that OKSIS podcast and our sisterhood is made up of women who are down for main character energy only, who take care of their mental health, and who are standing in their personal power as entrepreneurs. Oh yeah, that too, Scout, that too. We should probably introduce ourselves. Hello everyone, I am Mads. And I am Scout. And we are sisters IRL. Join us on OKSIS Podcast every Monday for some sisterly banter, nourishing mental health, a whole lot of silliness, and inspiring interviews from the raddest female guests in the game. We promise it'll be a good time. As long as you don't get too loud, Mads. Welcome to the sisterhood! Eliza, how do you as a person grow and evolve from someone who's running this really small business from home to somebody who's scaling a huge multi-million dollar company? Is this something that you're learning as the business is growing or did you have any formal education? What did you do? Uh, both. I mean, absolutely. So, you know, I would say running a business and growing with it is it really requires you to grow too. You are not going to be the same person on day one as, you know, day 1000. And if you're not open to growing, you're really going to end up being the bottleneck for the business because nobody starts out, you know, knowing how to manage 80 or 100 people or manage a board or, you know, make really tough decisions. So it requires a lot of uh, sort of mental and emotional commitment as well. It's not just, you know, how good am I at spreadsheets or how good am I at making decks and, and telling a story? You you have to have the the emotional stamina and resilience. Along the way, you know, 
having any kind of support system is going to be good for you, especially if you're a solo founder like myself. If you don't have a co-founder or co-founding team, that can show up in so many ways. It can show up as friends and family. It can show up as a cohort of other founders. It can show up as an executive coach or a forum of some kind. Uh, but I always tell other you know, early entrepreneurs that if you don't have that sort of network in, in one way, shape or form, you'll never survive because it, it really, it really requires a lot of support from, from all sides. That is um, a really consistent thing that I also hear from other founders as well. Now that you're at this stage in the business, what does your day-to-day look like? What are you responsible for? What are you managing? How are you managing your time? Yeah. So now, you know, I'm, I'm really lucky to be in, in a point in the company that I think suits me really well for also the stage in my life and what I'm interested in, in, in my own career, which is to say that I have, you know, an executive team who helps me run the company. It's no longer just me. I don't have to put out fires in the same way that I did, you know, early days. And, and I trust everyone implicitly and, and everyone really believes in the vision and mission. So you know, I have about seven direct reports and they really sort of run the gamut. I have merchandising and marketing reporting to me, but I also have, you know, our people and culture team and our engineering team reporting to me. So a lot of what I manage is sort of the front end customer experience, whereas my COO, for example, will manage things like fulfillment and distribution and logistics and customer service and things of that nature. And I mean, quite honestly, a lot of my time right now is spent in meetings and spent sort of internal I mean, I should say like, you know, this is a perfect example of how I'm using my time external in the sense that, you know, we're having this conversation. I hope, you know, a lot of um, uh, aspiring entrepreneurs hear this story. So I, I do like to get out as well. But I spend a lot of time working on the culture of the company and the policies and the processes, but but only in, in certain slices. Right. So I'm not I'm not having to block and tackle for the whole company anymore. That sounds like a great place to be. Switching gears a little bit, when you're thinking about acquiring new customers and growing the company, what kind of activities are you doing? What's working right now? Great question, especially in this you know day and age where things are changing. Uh, yes, you know, there's, there's, things are changing so much. They are. So you know, there's not one single thing that I can point to because I think we're constantly evolving and innovating. And you know, there's there's never been one simple solution, right? Because if there was, everyone would do it. I think what's always been unique about Basil is our desire to create community, and community shows up, you know, in our marketing efforts, in our programming, in our stores. And I think that's the common thread that does keep people, well, that not only brings people to the sill for the first time, but then keeps them engaged with our brand. And so I think that's quite unique. We're, we're not looking to have a very transactional relationship with our customers, and we're not sort of a set it and forget it subscription business, although we do have a subscription option. So every, you know, the best marketing that we do, honestly, is, is sort of the one-to-one marketing that connects our brand to people in a way that sort of meets them where they are and in their sort of like planned journey and, and, and educates um, and, and feels, you know, like we are a resource they can come back to time and time again. And so, you know, that's our classes, that's our content, that is our customer service. I do remember that you guys had a bunch of programming in the stores, which always looked awesome. I'd never managed to get to one, but always really wanted to. 
I imagine COVID was a bit of a curveball for that. How did you, did you take all the programming online? How did you handle that? You know, we still need time to really like reflect on, on everything that's happened. Um, how did we manage? How we managed was we went back to our value system and said, every decision we're going to make in the midst of this chaos has to meet our value system, right? Like this is when values, corporate values or company values or, you know, brand values for that matter, matter the most. And so we, we had to just make, you know, we worked a lot, right? We were like around the clock. We were making decisions. We were taking care of our people. And we were trying to make the experience for the customer as smooth as humanly possible in a very tumultuous environment. So our stores closed for four months. Our distribution got really congested. Even today, our supply chain is still hasn't, you know, still hasn't been sort of like reconciled to the point of pre-COVID. We're still seeing a lot of implications because, you know, our business now relies on partners who are not just exclusively us and who are not even just exclusively domestic. So we have some overseas partners who make some of our product and, you know, that's just a really tricky thing right now. Um, But like I said, we stick to our values and we, and we continue to run, as I mentioned earlier, you know, a more pragmatic than most business. And so we're a little bit more conservative and we're making our decisions based on, you know, that mentality so that we can survive this no matter what. Okay, I'm going to dig a little bit deeper on that. What were some of the really specific things that you changed during that time? Yeah, we, so we, we did move all of our programming online. So, you know, all of our events right now continue to be hosted on Zoom. We did, we have introduced since a couple of in-person events, but they look and feel a lot different than they used to. And we also, at the time, you know, introduced a few new mechanisms for shopping the store. Like, for instance, you can see some of our inventory for our stores on our website and then, you know, purchase them, you know, effectively for curbside pickup through our our Instagram. So, you know, we've, we've, we've kind of like put together a few things to get us around some of the restrictions, um, not restrictions, but, you know, changes in, I think, consumer behavior and comfort of just going into stores. Content, you know, our content has changed also, I would say, in, in respect to how consumer behavior has changed. And so it's less about us producing more content and more about the type of content we're producing. But I think the, the biggest thing for us, honestly, was it really opened our eyes to the power of plants, which you would think like we are the number one evangelist of plants to begin with. But having now watched a lot of our customers and then new customers go through some of the most challenging parts of COVID, but have plants, you know, in and, in and around their spaces, whether it's their home or home office, it's been really validating and it's allowed us to think even bigger about what the SIL can offer and, and what role we play in people's lives. You're so right. I mean, I can just think of myself during lockdown. We live in New York and in our apartment, we had these two really beautiful, massive bird of paradise palms. And they were like, I am so emotionally connected (laughs) to those trees and watering those plants and caring for those plants was literally like a one of the very, a very small ritual, but it was one of the very few things that was bringing me joy during the day, during that extended lockdown. So I can definitely see how that just yeah, changes people's relationships with their home and with plants and with your business as well. We're kind of coming to the end of the interview now, but before um, before I close out, I wanted to ask you for a resource and that could be a book, it could be a podcast, something that's helped you as you've been building the SIL. This is going to sound silly, but I'm a huge proponent of LinkedIn. 
<laughs> like get oh, okay. on it if you're not already on it and and use it. You know, I I think you know, I've, I've managed to make a lot of connections and I'm thinking right with like sort of an early days, you know, hat on, so to speak. So, you know, if I'm thinking about some of the things that actually did help me move the needle was it, it, a lot of it is about making connections with other founders, with, with partners, with resources that you may think that you don't have a connection to, or you don't know how to reach out to. And I I do think that LinkedIn sort of uh, takes away some of the anxiety about just like dropping someone a cold email, because then you do see like, all right, I have mutual connections to this person, or maybe so-and-so can give me a warm introduction to this person that I'd like to connect to. In terms of, you know, books and podcasts, if you're an entrepreneur who's interested in learning about venture capital, Venture Deals is a great book that I think everyone needs to read if you're even considering embarking on that journey. How I Built This is like kind of a go-to for, for getting inspired, which is a podcast, of course. And, and again, just building up that support system. So um, uh, highly recommend finding a coach for yourself. Highly recommend finding other founders that you can befriend. And then, and then sort of that looser, broader network of, of people that you can build on LinkedIn over time. Great tips. And my last question for you, Eliza, this is to help people get ideas. So people who are kind of sitting around and they're like, oh, I just haven't found that thing yet. I want to start something. I don't know what it is. If you were starting a business from scratch right now, let's pretend this still never happened. You're still 26 and you're looking around. What are you seeing right now that you think um, is an interesting opportunity? I would love to be able to find a way to actually give entrepreneurs low interest debt that's crowdfunded in the way that like a Kickstarter crowdfunds investment uh, or capital, I should say. I think that would be a really interesting thing because one of the things that I did find to be really challenging, especially as a young person who doesn't have a ton of credit, like a credit history, right? When you're super young is how can you, how can you actually get a facility that isn't venture capital or isn't a small business loan, which honestly is not even that easy to get if you're a young person with a very you know, unique idea and business model and you're sort of pre-launch. So wouldn't it be interesting to be able to actually aggregate or sort of pool together a low interest loan from people who believe in your story? Oh, that's really interesting. Uh, take note, folks, if you're looking for an idea. All right, Eliza, that's the end of the show. Thank you so much for coming on and telling us all about this, Sill. It's been awesome chatting with you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate sharing my story and, and chatting with you. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Female Founder World. If you want more from us, head to femalefounderworld.com, grab our newsletter, attend one of our events, join our community. There's a lot going on.